Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Show where we look at how to use behavioural science in public health for good. Tiago, how are you? Hi Stu, I'm very good. Um, I'm very excited because we're doing this in person. I know. It's for the first time. It is the first time. The energy in the room is incredible. We just right had now. a sing-song. I didn't record it even though I like to record Tiago. By we, by we. It was me it. this you time, yeah. yeah. But I'm in control of the record yeah, button. That's, so that's a big problem Unfortunately these days, so. for you. Yeah, um, yeah so um, what? how have you been? I've been uh, been good. I've been good. Um, yeah, just enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> you can't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Should we just have a chat at the beginning of the show? <coughs> okay, so we're here. Uh, that is, is exciting. Actually, we're here in the in the same room for once. Yes. I can't. It's it's very exciting for Tiago and um, <laughs> we're, um, we Next are. To the superstar. We, we've we've got a great interview for you today. Um, I was going to be telling you quick. Go onto the BSPHM website and book yep. your tickets to the conference. However, you can't because it is sold, sold out. out. Well done to the team for doing such a great job putting that together and marketing it yeah. so well. They must use some behavioural science in their marketing. They must have. The uh, lineup yeah. is impressive. Though. Your lineup is awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to going and seeing uh, all the different speakers, particularly uh, Sir Michael Marmot. But, um, you know, the other speakers also are really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that event. That's one of my favourite events, actually, from the year. So I love going and speaking to all of the different um, people who attend that. They're very yes. much, I feel like they're very much my people. They're Ooh, people who care people. about. Yes. Your tribe. Well, they care about behavioural science yeah. in the world, in yeah, the real world and stuff. So I, I'm really, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, so if we, um, so w- let's get on to the, today's show. So today we've got Casey Hughes from the uh, US and uh, she's a distinguished digital health leader and applied behavioral scientist with 15 years of experience in designing novel behavior change interventions for the prevention and management of chronic disease. Um, Casey is the recent founder of Adapt Sciences, which is a behavioral science and design consulting agency. And she's also previously served in leadership roles across multiple sectors, leading the ground up design of numerous health apps, coaching programs and large scale behavior change interventions at all sorts of leading organizations such as Stanford, Apple and Elvance Health. Wow. I know, she's done it's an awful impressive. lot because yeah. she's not that old either as well. Uh, more, it actually puts her to shame a little bit. But um, more, more recently, Casey led the design of a neuroscience-based habit formation app as the Senior Vice President of Behavioural Science at Fresh Try Inc., helping hundreds of thousands of people enhance their mental health and well-being, achieve sustainable weight loss and reverse chronic illness. We are super excited to Very have excited. Ka- Casey on the show. I nearly said yeah. Katie then, uh, because Tiago put it in my head. But <laughs> you kept yeah, saying, don't blame, say Katie. Let's blame it on Tiago. <laughs> I do blame Tiago. Um, you kept saying, don't say Katie. Um, so um, without any further ado, let's move over straight to the show. Let's do it. Right, okay. Welcome to the show, Casey. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. We can't wait. Casey, why don't you um, start by telling us a little bit about where you are now and what got you to where you are now? Yes, I would love to. So I'll start by saying I often, I used to joke about it. Now I'm serious about it. I say that I design for behavior change in the lab of messy everyday life. 
The reason I say that is because I know what messy life looks like and I know how different changing behavior is in the real world versus in a lab. So how I got started was really as a child. Um, I watched both of my parents, amazing, incredible people, high performing people struggle with their health and well-being in multiple ways, uh, including battling substance use disorder. And I remember being a kid and obviously a somewhat codependent kid uh, and trying to solve their problems, trying to change their behavior, trying to manipulate and coerce them. And I, I thought that's what behavior change was uh, for a very long time. Uh, when I graduated high school, I was 17 years old and I was kind of that perfect kid, right? Because I wanted to follow all the rules and I said, okay, I'm going to help people. I'm going to be a psychologist. I'm going to change the world. And I still had this, uh, idea of that's what behavior change is and then i realized okay <laughs> hold up uh i need to i need to try this out in a different realm and so i started working with people as a health and wellness coach and i diverged a little bit and <laughs> took my focus off of uh saving people from from mental health uh and well-being issues and instead focused on disease management i started working with people on weight loss and hypertension and i started became becoming really fascinated uh by why some people had very strong intentions to change uh, yet didn't show up for their next session. And so long story short, that led me into the world of applied behavioral science, uh, where I just absolutely fell in love with learning about behavior change theories and models and frameworks and how to apply them in the real world to guide lasting behavior change. Um, so for the last 15 years, I've really been focused on uh, designing large scale interventions uh, that take the form of health coaching programs, habit formation apps, uh, health and well-being initiatives at large payers and healthcare systems, and using these to help people build sustainable habits in ways that uh, seamlessly integrate with their lives. Because the truth is, when we try to design for behavior change in very prescriptive and static and stagnant ways, it never works. So long story short, um, I've worked across multiple sectors. I was at Apple Health for a while. I was at Stanford Healthcare before that. Uh, most recently, I was Senior Vice President of Behavioral Science and Design at a startup called Fresh Try. And now I recently founded my company, Adapt Sciences, uh, where I'm working with health-focused companies on helping them achieve their miss mission uh, through behavioral science and design. Awesome. Um, I think your your opening line puts you in the right place on this show. It's all, this is all about the real world and you yeah. know how messy that can be and all mm -hmm. that type of stuff. We were just talking off uh, off the show there about about how messy it is in the mornings for you. So I want to. <laughs> I'm sure we want some tips later. Yes, absolutely. about how to get kids out in the morning with clean teeth, <laughs> shoes on, the right feet. Oh, we'll right. come yeah. to that. that Perfectly imperfect. Come. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and, and what about education um, there, Casey, as well? Where, where did you, you you study? Yeah. So in the midst of my craziness, uh, in my late mm. teens, early 20s, I did my undergrad in health psychology from Arizona State. Uh, after that, I was 
much much more aligned on my uh, evidence-based behavioral science course of life. Uh, and I did my master's degree in health promotion science from University of Alabama. Uh, and then I took some time off to become a mom, have kids, yep. uh, continue progressing in my career. And only recently uh, did, I did I decide it was time to go back to school. So I am uh, a candidate at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of public health, uh, studying social and behavioral sciences. Um, this is a whole nother area of conversation, but people ask me all the time. Um, and I'm just gonna be very transparent about this because I think it's a topic people might be interested in. They say, okay, mm -hmm. so you were just senior vice president of behavioral science at a company. Why did you go back to school for behavioral science? Did you feel like you needed it for your career? And the answer is absolutely 100% yes. Because mm -hmm. if you look around, the ecosystem of startups and healthcare companies and the like. There's behavioral science and design teams growing everywhere, but I will tell you firsthand that there are not enough behavioral designers and scientists equipped with the knowledge and skill to know how to conduct empirical research uh, and take user research to the next level with evidence-based practices and guess what i was one of them i used i mean i've hired um ux researchers and i've hired phds and drph scientists to to be on my science teams but i felt like i was lacking the skill to be a primary researcher and that really concerned me so there was no ego involved in the decision. I said, I'm going back to school and I'm gonna learn how to become a primary researcher, despite the fact that I have been reading other people's studies and, and interpreting and analyzing and critiquing literature for 15 years, I have never been in the driver's seat of designing and launching my own study, so I wanna do it. And that led me to applying and getting accepted to I'm very blessed, the number one public health school in the United States, and um, I feel very grateful and fortunate for that. That that sounds really exciting. Can I can I just jump in and ask? Because uh, I've I've had this conversation um, a few times quite recently about what is it like to to work in the industry, so in the real world, and, and apply concepts of behavior science and work with people, and then stop and go back to education again. Do you feel that prepared you? in a different way to to tackle the, that that acknowledgement of, of more frameworks of different ways of working so i guess the question is what was it like to do what is often seen as the other way around so rather than education and then real world you've done it the other way around so real world and then back right. to educations right. can i add a question to that yes <laughs> that question is what do the other people on your course think yes. of yeah. your experience before <laughs> as well I'll tell you what, I'm going in much less naive um, and much more equipped with knowledge of politics and a little bit of the chaos that goes on. And yeah. it's aided me in a really important way. So number one, I realize that uh, behavior change theories and models are imperfect. I I understand that they explain and predict behavior to a certain extent, but there are always nuances and there are always yeah. contextual factors that influence behavior. So while I find that people studying behavior change theories and models and frameworks for the first time go in with 
a lot of um, excitement and maybe overconfidence that they can use a single model to drastically change a population's <laughs> yeah, behavior. Classic, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very aware that that is impossible. Um, and, you know, another thing I'll tell you is I've been wildly surprised at how far behind academia is from industry in certain elements. Take, for example, so I study behavioral weight loss interventions. How do we mm -hmm. identify critical mechanisms of action and match those to the right behavior change techniques, the right strategies, and deliver them at the right time? And I feel that industry is is very much uh, ahead than academia in this regard. Some of the programs I'm seeing are still very one-size-fits-all. Uh, people with overweight or obesity come into this program and then they automatically, module one, they do goal setting, they set SMART goals, and then module two, they move into health education about what a CARB is. We've known for a long time that's ineffective, a very, very long time. and. If you look at the literature, especially related to behavioral weight loss, we know that adaptive interventions are the future. Smart designs and uh, just-in-time adaptive interventions where we're taking people's data, both active self-report and passive data, and we're using that to predict what the next best thing for them specifically will be. And when I talk about this in my courses, um, I'll be honest, some people, even professors, have no idea what I'm talking about. And and that That does sound quite advanced yeah, though. It does, yeah. Casey, to be honest, like you know, I, I love the I love the idea of the just in time adaptive sort of programs. Can you just speak a bit more about that then actually? Sure. Because I think that is a really interesting thing. Because I, I feel like in public health circles over here in the UK, there's de a decent amount of the majority of, of programs still follow that that um that sort of format that you mentioned yes, they do and you know it's not to to guilt or shame anyone still using that it's it's just a matter of innovation and progression in knowing that there are psychobehavioral traits and characteristics that can define certain phenotypes of of people and when we deliver the same intervention to multiple different uh phenotypes of people only a proportion are going to be helped. And we see that in the weight loss literature. There's a small, poor, small, um, very small proportion of people who respond well in the long term to these interventions. So what I mean by adaptive interventions is that we're not just addressing the same mechanisms of action for everybody. So you can have 10 people with obesity who all struggle with, say, emotional eating. Okay, and they all come into mm -hmm. your program, but but the processes and the determinants of that emotional eating may be wildly different for those 10 people. Some people may really struggle with uh, perceptions of social support from their spouse or their family at home. Other people yeah. may constantly be at work around tempting food cues, right? Other people may have had epigenetic influences from the womb that have determined the course of their mm -hmm. disease development. Uh, mm. One one trait that I, I'm interested in studying and am, I am studying right now is, is hope and not hope as a virtue or an emotion, but hope as a cognitive process. How do I, uh, what is my level of agency for developing different pathways to my goals. When one pathway gets blocked, do I 
automatically try a different pathway or do I kind of stop there and say, I'm blocked, I need, you know, this isn't going to work for me and I prematurely quit. All of these types of inputs around um, giving insights into someone's environment, someone's psychology, someone's past behavioral patterns are all really important cues that should help interventionists determine, okay, when someone walks into my door, into my program, what's the next best thing for them? Are they really ready to jump into goal setting or are they really struggling with failure management? And when one goal goes sour, when they're not able to reach that goal, say this arbitrary line of 10,000 steps, say they hit 9,200, are they going to interpret that as I made significant progress today or I failed to reach my goal? Because the answers to those questions can determine whether someone comes back next week or if they throw in the towel. And we see this every day. I find this this fascinating, and especially because you've dropped the concept of hope, which is something that we also talk about. And, and ah. I think it, it plays a very interesting and important role. I guess my question to you is, I, I see that being a, a very, very strong approach on an individual or even small group level. But let's take a, a maybe consider how would that work on a, in terms of a scalable model? So in terms mm-hmm. of being an adaptive intervention, an iterative intervention that doesn't stick to always the same format, always the same lessons, always the same plan. How would that work um, on a big, big scale? We have to use technology. We have to use AI and we have to use machine learning. Uh, I think someone who I admire dearly love chatting with laugh every time is amy boucher who's leading behavioral science and design at lirio she's the chief behavioral officer and they are mastering this concept of uh developing essentially adaptive interventions where uh the technology is assigning certain techniques or strategies to an individual person based on their unique characteristics and responses to certain content and behavior. Uh, The way that we scale this, I'll just, keeping with the example of behavioral weight loss interventions, um, is by, say someone comes into your app or your program, they complete a self-report questionnaire. If if you're able to code those, similar to how we code behavior change techniques, you code yeah. the inputs of those self-report um, assessments, as well as some passive data as well. The screens that they're click uh, tapping on, the content they're most interested in. We can learn a lot about a person uh, through their natural passive behaviors, as well as what they tell us and what their perceptions are. Because again, remember, uh, even though some data is arguably subjective, right? How someone feels about themselves, yeah. you know, any self-report data, narratives and perceptions are powerful we know that from social science what people think of themselves is often more important uh, in determining their health and well-being than the actual physiological marker so again we can code these things and then use technology in uh, develop models to essentially predict uh which behavior change technique or which piece of content may resonate best with that person. So for example, I'll use the example of hope because again, it's what I'm studying right now. If if someone comes into um, a program and they've tried 20 times in their past to lose weight and they've been unsuccessful every single time, and you know that they have low levels of hope, low levels of agenic and pathways thinking, we can predict from 
theory and empirical evidence that putting them into a very difficult task or putting them into a very high caliber goal is probably not going to be most appropriate for them. Um, so again, we may try something else. We may connect them with a health coach instead who can engage in motivational interviewing. And you know, I'll tell you someone who uh, I've been reading a lot of their work and is uh, Dr. Gary Foster from Weight Watchers. So Weight Watchers has been putting out more and more um, research around adaptive interventions, and they have the data to do so. They have tons and tons of data, tons of, of information, and I think they're trying to learn and develop these types of interventions. Um, Dr. Deborah Tate uh, from UNC I think she's at UNC, uh, is, is another researcher who I'm following along, um, Dr. Carla Miller. There's a lot of researchers who are now developing these adaptive interventions for uh, conditions like diabetes, obesity, and the like. This is... I've, yeah. I've, there's so much <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I've, I've had to take notes and look same, up stuff same. online. I'm writing stuff down. Um, so... I. When you're talking about hope, uh, I, we talk about hope slightly differently to that, actually. But I, well, no, actually, in your second description, we don't. We talk about it quite similarly. Okay. However, it may it reminded me of um, the way you described it originally. Uh, it all aligned to, but not synonymous with grit. You know, from yes. sort of Angela Duckworth's sort of idea of right resilience or grit yeah. or, or whatever you want to want to call it. So hope could be a predictor of grit, if you like, and resilience. It sort of mm -hmm. got that. Tri trifecta there working mm -hmm. working together um and the other thing uh, well f firstly amy butcher you're absolutely right I, I mean actually i can't believe it it's four and a half years since she came on the show but wow. she's actually on been on the show before so anybody interested go back to the second show we ever produced that was amy Amazing. um so and she was she was great then but i think she's come a long way since that because ai wasn't even well it was around but not yeah. to the extent that it is now so what what they're doing must be light years yes. ahead of when we recorded and the other thing is the this notion that I think comes up quite a lot in this show, which is with the best with the best interventions and the best sort of minds in in this field around um, behavioral science being more like a toolbox and avoiding the Dunning Kruger effect, which is sort of what you described there of those people who are really enthusiastic but but limited in terms of the scope because they're still learning mm -hmm. and, and haven't applied it elsewhere. I think going back to university and, and studying it with the, the hindsight of all of the stuff that you've done before and the benefit of all of that knowledge gives you a really strong grounding in it being a toolbox, not a one-size-fits-all. It's not all, you know, um, it, I won't even say behavioral economics. It's not all nudges, basically. No. It's what, <laughs> it, yeah. it, it is what, what you, you're having to overcome. And I think... Could you talk a bit more about that that notion of the toolbox? Because I think that's something that people really do need to work out how to make work in their day-to-day -day jobs, whether they're in public health, whether they're in mm -hmm. um, tech or anything else. You, you, you can't apply the same tools to everything, which is sort of what you're saying in the dy dynamic yes. intervention. Absolutely. Uh, you must have a very... Uh, diverse toolbox. I actually wrote a post on this uh, a while ago and it was wildly popular. I didn't expect it to be, but I think because people really resonate with this concept and yeah. um, I think it's why I got in touch with you. Do you remember? It I is. Got in touch with I think it is. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. You know, and, and one of the key points that I made in that is you actually, none of your tools will be effective if you come in with the mindset of you're going to change someone else's behavior. It drives me crazy when people <laughs> say i change behavior by 
or I'm going to change this person's behavior. I change behavior. You don't change behavior. You don't change anybody's behavior. We design interventions that influence mechanisms that influence behavior. We are um, the interventionists. We are the designers that are trying to construct experiences that help people change their own behavior. And I think it's so important for us to realize that because what I see happening is overconfidence. I see a lot of behavioral designers and scientists who who have this ego and this level of um, superiority. And I think that can turn a lot of people off. Frankly, it, it turns off healthcare executives. It turns off um, leaders who know nothing about behavioral science uh, and and I, I don't want us to do that. I, I want us to have more of a humble spirit and say, look, we have a lot of tools that we can use to construct experiences to enable and empower people to take, uh, to make purposeful steps in improving their health and well-being through behavior change. But it's that common adage, right? If you give someone a fish or you teach them how to fish, we've known this in coaching forever right coaching is all about being person-centered it's about the the client the patient the user is the expert of their own life and we use tools and techniques to help them become their best selves and help them to gain perceived behavioral control to help them um, become more autonomous and self-regulated and essentially that's what our tools are doing so you know social cognitive theory, uh, theory of planned behavior, theory of reason action, the integrated behavior model, even the COMB framework, right? All of these tools and frameworks and theories give us a set of insights into human behavior that help us design interventions uh, by predicting what is likely to influence someone to make changes. And, you know, I in that post, I, I told a story when I was interviewing for the job at Apple. They asked me, they said, it, at the, I didn't know at the time, uh, but I mean, I did know immediately after they asked it, but, but she said, if you were to pick one way to change the behavior of everyone in the entire world, right, what theory would you use? And my answer was, there isn't one way. I wouldn't use <laughs> one theory. I wouldn't is, use one model. Um, and I don't change behavior. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because the truth is, you have to design uh, we can't take a top-down approach in behavioral science or design. You can't say, today, I'm going to use the theory of planned behavior to design a health behavior change intervention. No, wrong. Instead, we look at the population. We look at their quality of life needs. We look at their physiological needs. We look at the concerns that they have for their own life, as well as what the more objective data is telling us. And then based on the problem, we work backwards and we look at the determinants of those behaviors that are associated with those problems. And then we look at our toolbox and we say, which theoretical framework, which model uh, is going to best aid me in helping these people? Uh, which determinants are lining up here? And frankly, I rarely ever use a single theory or model when I'm designing an intervention. I mm. use many uh, mix, during yeah. many different uh, parts of the process. And, you know, what I love about Susan Meekie's, thank you for helping me pronounce her name right, Susan Meekie's <laughs> um, combi model is that 
you can integrate multiple theories and models within that, right? If you're looking at um, automatic motivation or if you're looking at um, reflective motivation, right? You can consider a lot there. You can also consider neuroscientific uh, uh, insights as well. You know, for example, I, I talk about failure management a lot, not to go too off track here, but there's a lot of neuroscience coming out that is validating some of the theories that we've had for a long time about perceptions of failure. Uh, at my last company, Fresh Try, um, the CEO, Dr. Kyra Bobinet, introduced me to the part of the brain called the lateral habenula, which literally is a pea-sized area in your brain that is essentially a failure detector. Studies from UCSF have um, have uh, explored this with zebrafish because yes, zebrafish actually have a very similar lateral habenula as humans. Uh -huh. And they find when zebrafish try Obviously. to... <laughs> <laughs> zebrafish try to fight each other, the one that loses will not try to go back and fight the other zebrafish for a while because they've perceived failure and they don't want to enter another situation where they may fail. So zebrafish, humans. Again, how can we tie this back to goals, right? Someone fails at reaching their obnoxious, arbitrary goal that a program has set for them. People with very sensitive um, sens sensitivities to failure may not go back and try to attempt that goal again because they don't want to fail. We as humans are programmed to not want to fail. And so, you know, hint, I, I, maybe I'm giving this away, but I'm, I'm writing an article about this right now where I'm like, maybe we need to start designing for failure instead of designing for winning all the time. Have we ever thought about that? I mean, that's we... A, that's a great point. Well, we have. We talk Stu? about it all the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. We talk about it all the time um, because it's almost inevitable. If you're trying to change, if you're trying to control the whole environment, think about the myriad um things that can happen in all the different directions and all the different social relationships and environmental factors. If you can get comfortable with failure and asking questions of that failure, you know, we, we call it like de-risking de mm -hmm. failure by sort of running an experiment. So we call it an experiment because when you're running an experiment, you plan more than if you just set a, a quick goal or whatever. <clears throat> and you don't and you know you might not get it all right first time. So when you then inevitably do have something get in the way, you can then say, well, we knew that would not go totally right we didn't know where it'd go wrong but we knew it would go wrong somewhere and that's fine that's all about making it about me mm -hmm. you know and that in in the individualization piece that you were sort of talking about before it only become you, you can give out generic advice but it only becomes hyper relevant and contextually relevant to the person when it actually interacts with their life and failure is often the moment at which it interacts properly with their life mm -hmm. you can make as many plans as you want but if it's only once it then fails that that you can sort of say oh your plan didn't work for me. So you have to be good at, you know, and I'd say grit, hope, all those things, you know, in, in, in supporting someone's ability to yes. get back on track. And let's so talk I, about... I we do talk about that quite a lot. That, that's amazing. I, you know, one thing, I, I mentor health and wellness coaches a lot. As I mentioned in my kind of brief and uh, scattered intro, I started out in health and wellness coaching and I'm very passionate about supporting health and wellness coaches with behavioral science knowledge. And one of the things that I talk a lot about with them is expectation setting. When someone comes in, even if you're not a health and wellness coach, right, even if you've designed a digital program, what kind of expectations are you setting? Because 
you have an ability to prime and anchor the the course of their goal striving experience. So even when goals are set, you can help protect against failure right off the bat by by even a single line of copy that says, mm. this is an experiment. Yeah. Whether you meet this goal or not, you're not a failure. We're in the process of learning and finding what works for you. Bam, three sentences, and you can totally change the trajectory of someone's goal striving course. Expectations are very, very powerful. And I don't think Mm -hmm. that we use enough of this when we're designing programs. Um, Every time I try out a new habit app or a new uh, digital tool, it's like, okay, you know, click click the number of steps you want to take or, you know, click the number of glasses of water you want to drink. We just jump right into habit formation instead of setting the stage for what this often extremely difficult process uh, mm. should look mm. like. I think that, that's a very good point. And I've always thought about it from the perspective of, I think, I think we, as people work in behavior science, around behavior science, I've got an obsession of what what where we want people to go rather than where people are at the moment and it yeah. and I think this is where the focus is always like I want you to do this I want you to do that rather than like you say taking a few steps back and then focus on the problem and and the, the struggles in front of you and starting from that perspective and rather than goal setting this is what you're going to be doing in a in a month or in a week so I've always thought about it from the perspective of I think we as a as a an industry a team an area field mm-hmm. need to stop thinking about where we want people to be and focus more where we want where people are absolutely i think the reframing is absolutely what you're describing um there casey and reframing it from a a goal which is binary to an experiment which could Mm -hmm. have many outcomes and that sort of yeah, I think you're totally right in terms mm-hmm. of, sort of just that one line to say that's what we're doing. Now, whether that's credible or not is another matter altogether. Whether they whether they read that, whether they're going through the motions and whatever, and, and mm-hmm. you can get over that zebrafish habenulum. Is that right? Yeah, habenula. Yep, lateral right. habenula. habenula. Yep. Okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's right. Um, but if, if, you know, whether you can get over those things is another matter altogether. But that is a great point from an intervention design perspective. Um, and I want to. I just want to take us two things i want to hear a bit more about apple health um and of course you do before that i also yeah of course i do i'm a bit of an apple fan i love steve jobs as well we do a joke of have i got one in the room i haven't by a bit stew means a lot in the room i do i i i give out as a joke pictures of me looking like steve jobs from the cover of his book (laughs) i gave one to tiago yesterday actually in in, or the day before you but there you go wow um that is incredible yeah i'm just showing casey but it's gone way too far yeah it's gone it's gone on for over a decade now and it's gone way too far but you know we're deep into that now Uh, so we'll definitely get to the apple thing for sure um i have one question for you though and that is about sociology Mm. um because i i often go on and tiago may well roll his eyes um but i I think sociology is one of the more overlooked elements of um of behavioral science because it's in there behavioral and social science you know, social mm-hmm. is one of the bigger parts of it in terms of how it influences people's ability to make change, etc. So mm-hmm. how much do you do you think we you and then we as a, as a field are um, adequately including sociology in behavioral sciences? Uh, ooh, the short answer is not enough, right? Um, public mm-hmm. health does a really good job of this. Uh, the social and behavioral sciences. I disagree. <laughs> 
You you disagree? In the US, in the US, well, maybe. But in the US, maybe. But that's that's my big gripe is that we don't. It does do it. It just doesn't. It, there's so many decent theories that we don't yeah. talk about because it, they haven't made the crossover. You know, the nomenclature around psychology comes nicely into health that's and public true. health, etc. The nomenclature from sociology is so hard, I think, to grasp with. Like, if you take my favourite, I'm waiting for it. Is habitus by Pierre Bourdieu? There's always a reference. Mm. The language is so. It's, it's just so complex but it's so valuable mm-hmm. but i don't think we so i don't think we like have the same level of acceptance of bringing it in yeah so <clears throat> again being at johns hopkins i get exposure to a lot of incredible qualitative researchers who uh travel around the globe and many of them are anthropologists many of them are sociologists uh of which my advisor actually is so so maybe my thinking is a little biased and i i can say that public health at johns hopkins does an incredible job uh, (laughs) at including sociology uh sociological theories the the number one public health school in the states as you said earlier yeah you know feminist feminist theory postmodern theory uh social exchange theory you know and and we do i'll say a, a very excellent job of um you know, I'm pushed a lot, actually, because I study intrapersonal, pr- primarily intrapersonal level behavior change, as well as, uh, you know, some interpersonal and, and some uh, community based. I, I don't do much organizational or policy level change. But um, I would say the public health leaders that I know and respect across the country, I met many at Anthem. Well, now it's called Elevance Health. For those in the UK, it's it's uh, one of the largest payers in the United States, health insurance companies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even during t- my time at, at Stanford, I met some really incredible leaders who um, consider the social ecological model, consider that our behavior is influenced uh, by our community, by the organizations that shape our policies, uh, by the unspoken rules that govern how we communicate with others, cultural values and norms, um, you know, and I've been really impressed with that. In behavioral science, uh, to answer your question, I I don't ever hear it talked about. Um, you know, actually, a lot of people kind of poo-poo qualitative uh, qualitative research and in-depth um, phenomenal. I can never say that word. Am I phenomenological. Say it? Phenomenological. Yeah. Thank you research uh but i find it fascinating i want to hear people's narratives about how the unspoken rules and and norms and values of their society inhibit uh or promote their behavior Mm. and shape the way that they look at themselves and the world and the reciprocal effects of that on other people's behavior and you know so it's all so fascinating to me because um i i think that social networks and social communities uh honestly make the world go round right we are we are not separated from our environment uh our environment the people places things uh both seen and unseen drastically shape human behavior and I think you were speaking Tiago's language there. Phenomenological yes. Phenom- studies is easy. phenomenological. Yeah, it's, it's easy for me to yes. say. Say it three yeah. times. Well, I was, I was go- but I wasn't going to say it. I was going to say so phenomenology. The, so this is, and then I thought, yeah. is that what it is? Yeah. Phenomenology so is your background, yeah, isn't it? That's, yeah, so. that's why they call it IPA rather than interpretive 
phenomenological analysis. Okay. So, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, Tiago talks about it all the time when he wants to sound fancy. Yeah. So uh -huh. just, the, my, my go-to, uh, yeah, yeah, my go-to. Okay. When he's showing off, he starts yeah. talking about. I put my glasses in and I start talking about that. <laughs> he's trying to look clever. Look, um, yeah. So, um, Casey, why don't you tell us about what what you did at, at Apple Health? Because obviously, the Steve Jobs connection is strong with this one. So, so what what did you do yeah. in? Uh, <laughs> Primer. I can't say a lot. Strong with this one. Yeah. Primer. Yeah, I can't say a lot. Apple is a very private um, company, it and is. I highly respect that. What I will say is that it was one of the most incredible points in my career. Uh, I was working at Stanford Healthcare uh, under the leadership of Dr. Semble Desai. Uh, we launched Stanford's first virtual primary care clinic, as well as Stanford's first uh, clinical health and wellness coaching program, which I led the development of that portion of it from the ground up. Um, and so for three years, we ran this experiment. It was incredibly successful uh, in helping people reduce biomarkers of chronic disease, improve quality of life, and at the time, virtual care was a brand new thing. This is the first time we introduced this concept to Stanford, which is one of the largest healthcare systems, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, one, one of the most prominent healthcare systems in the United States. And uh, Apple, who's down the street uh, in, in Cupertino, uh, I think caught wind of, of what Dr. Desai was leading and what we had accomplished. And at that time, Apple was very interested in entering the health space. And so... Uh, Dr. Desai went to Apple uh, and recruited over a group of us uh, that launched this uh, this initiative at Stanford. And I was extremely fortunate and blessed uh, to be on this brand new health special projects team, uh, where I would say about 50% of my role was working on R&D efforts uh, as an applied behavioral scientist, helping to improve features of Apple's products to uh, support sustainable health behavior change in diverse populations. And then the other half of my role was focused on launching uh, Apple's AC Wellness Clinics. So uh, Crossover Health uh, used to staff um, Apple's clinics and uh, we developed our own. And as part of that, uh, I did something very similar to what I did at Stanford. Uh, we launched Apple's first health and wellness coaching program. Uh, I I led uh, largely led that initiative, uh, bringing on uh, multidisciplinary coaches as well as um, uh, in, in integrating that within uh, the new medical offerings. And we served Apple employees across Silicon Valley. Uh, it was a really uh, incredible time. You know, I, I always joke because coming from Stanford uh, and, and having this wildly successful virtual program, I had in my head, this is Apple, right? Everybody's going to want digital everything. Um, mm. I still laugh about it to this day. A lot of, you know, people were like, hold up, right? Like we code all day, every day, like where's the human interaction? And so we had brick and mortar clinics and they were very popular. People, um, you know, like to come to these brick and mortar clinics and see real humans in real life. So again, you know, takeaways at every part of my journey. Um, but I, a lot of the team that I worked with at Apple um, is still there and I admire them. They're doing incredible things. I love hearing about all their successes and wins. Uh, I don't, you know, the reason 
I ended up going to Anthem is because uh, I left Apple. I went on maternity leave and I had my daughter, Kensington, who's now about to turn five. Can't believe that. Um, And, you know, when I came back, I was reignited with this passion to learn more about underserved communities, underserved populations, and how we can close disparities gaps and get them up to speed with the rest of the world. Uh, Anthem was launched now Elevance was launching a new digital clinical strategy team um, and that was going to support government markets such as Medicaid and Medicare, as well as commercial mm-hmm. markets. And I was really fascinated by that opportunity. I saw it as a, a, a prime um, opportunity to go in and explore a world that, that frankly, I, I hadn't explored before. How do we get behavior change interventions and programs to people who may not otherwise be able to afford them or get access to them? Uh, maybe those who can't afford an Apple Watch or an iPhone, uh, they can't afford all the fancy gadgets and things that you wear to track your health and biometrics. How do we just help them become enabled and empowered? And that's really been the theme for my career progression. Uh, I have been very purposeful about every job I've taken to immerse myself in a new sector or new area that can help me learn more about, again, that social ecological uh, that that fuels the health and well-being of populations Mm -hmm. that either widens disparity gaps or closes them. Uh, So that's a little bit about my time at Apple. No, that is that was you not saying much about yeah. Apple just, to, <laughs> just to sorry uh, I guess I guess you, you've raised the point that's quite uh, I'm quite interested in exploring a bit further in terms of the, the you talked about human connection when you were talking about tech and, and digital approaches and I'm, I'm quite interested to see your opinion in terms of where is the balance between ensuring that the human connection is there but you also make the most out of your your tech um, that they've got available. And I guess because you also mentioned about working with local communities, mm-hmm. where, what's the role of trust in that ability to come in with, let's say, huge tech behind you and, and still supporting local communities and, and ensuring that trust is is comes across? And I want to add another question. I just like <laughs> oh, great. Just, up, confused. just top up. I yeah. feel like the four things that Tiago <laughs> asked weren't enough. Because what my question that goes with that really is the way you described the the toolbox you need if you're on you know on site with people doing that work, you've got to be reasonably well trained to understand that and have that experience. So how can you affordably do that? Mm. Where you've got people who have got that level of experience but can be done you know you know that, that aren't unaffordable for you know healthcare systems. I'm thinking more about the UK healthcare system, mm-hmm. which is um, not got the same obviously same payment mechanism as the US. Casey, right. do you remember yeah. when you said we're going to try to keep it to four to five minutes? This is yeah. why uh, this is there. why it never happens. <laughs> this is why it never happens. I told happens. you. Okay, I'm going to try to answer those um, eight questions and do my best. <laughs> <laughs> no, no remind pressure. me. Good remind luck. me yeah. if I miss Good one. Luck. No, so um, I think we're still learning on how to, uh, on on how to deliver meaningful effective interventions that seamlessly blend human connection and technology. So the short answer there is I don't think we know yet. I think we'll, we're still learning. We know that social yeah. support is a critical mechanism of action and behavior change for virtually all people. Uh, people don't like to be alone and people don't like to change alone. People like to feel respected and cared for. Uh, they like to feel like they're an inclusive uh, in part of an inclusive environment and community. So 
for the digital programs I design, I always make sure there's a community aspect of it. And I think we've seen examples of where community aspects can go very wrong and be detrimental to one's health and well-being. And I think we're starting to see uh, more communities pop up that are more caring and mirror that human connection you may get in real life. Uh, at Fresh Try, my my previous company, uh, we had a, uh, still have, if you download the app, it's free on the App Store, uh, a gratitude and intention feed where people can come in and we've almost primed what that, so you can actually type whatever you want, but we've primed it so that, you know, we you have an option to say, I'm grateful for, uh, and it's written in gray text, so it, it primes what that conversation should be. So a lot of people go in and they post what they're grateful for each and every day, and then they can post their intention for the day. And it's built this really beautiful community of supporting one another. And you can actually send Hallmark-like cards to one another. Uh, so if someone says, you know, I had a really hard day yesterday, um, I struggled with my eating, I struggled to meet my exercise goal, you can actually go in as another user and send a random acts of kindness card to that person to say, you got this, right? You're going to, you know, every day is a new day. And Fresh Try has done an incredibly beautiful job of building an inclusive inclusive environment digitally uh, without ever even knowing the person's name. It's all anonymous. So the the bottom line is that um, you can do it. It, it takes uh, both an art and it's a science. Uh, there's there was no studies right uh, uh, on on building a gratitude and intention feed yeah. right. It was a yeah. artful blend of creative thinking and using behavior change theory to guide the development of of a feature within an app. Um, <clears throat> you know, and you know, speaking stew to your question about the toolbox right i think that's a great example where we so fresh try serves walmart associates across the united states uh and that's an example of looking at a population understanding what some of their drivers of behavior and of disease uh and of of well-being are uh one of them primarily being social support but then also weighing data showing that people want to be anonymous. Some of them are very scared and uh, not very pro-social, right? They kind of uh, scroll yeah. through feeds and maybe read for a while before posting. Um, and so we purposely tried to design uh, a feature that would make them feel included, that would make them feel safe and protected to engage with a community without feeling fear of being judged or embarrassed. Um, and it was a very beautiful thing. That's a great answer to our nine questions, by the way. <laughs> it is really good. Yeah, no, that was, and, and, and I was thinking while you were talking there, Casey, about, you know, we, we, we've got to bring a lot of diversity to this show so we can challenge ideas and whatever. But there's not a single idea that you've brought to the show, mm. with the exception of the public health sociology point um, <laughs> that I've disagreed with. And mm. I think it's a, a, a great, um, well-rounded set of points that I think people can really get on board with. I have one last question. Um, which is if you were giving advice to people who want to use behavioral science more in their work and they haven't gone and done a PhD just yet, I mean, we do have a lot of PhDs and, and academics listening to the show, but if you, if you wanted to use, you know, let's think about the people that you, that, that are going back into their public health jobs or mm -hmm. into their social care jobs or whatever they are, how, how do they get going with, with behavioral science mm -hmm. from your perspective? Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> And I want I want people to know because I am 
doing my my doctorate doesn't mean that I wasn't able to be successful in behavioral science without it. So don't feel discouraged. You know, I, mm. I there are an incredible amount of master's level uh, and and even some without master's degree degrees, behavioral designers and, and applied behavioral scientists who help people in incredible ways. It, it depends, you know, my my uh, reason for getting a doctorate was because I wanted to be able to conduct primary research and better lead my science teams when I develop them. Now, what I think are the fundamental things that you need to be successful in this field, uh, doctorate or not, you need to be curious, you need to be humble, and you need to be willing to experiment. And I'll add a fourth, not try to be an instant expert. Um, that is the number one thing that is going to yep. essentially damage you and, 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 and drown you. Because for many, many years, I kept my mouth shut. Uh, I kept my ears open and I soaked up as much information as I could. I constantly reached out to behavioral scientists, behavioral designers, leaders in coaching, leaders in sociology, leading researchers, and I asked them to teach me. And I was very humble and patient in that. And, you know, after 15 years, I now feel like I'm in a place where I can help support and mentor and guide other people in that situation. But you know, I another thing I talk about a lot is we are under an extreme amount of pressure these days to be wiser than the next person, to be more powerful than the next person, to be this this expert. And I think it can lead people to trying to do too much too soon instead of, again, you know, take a job in a sector that you're unfamiliar with try to develop and and apply new skills by learning about the people you serve in that capacity because again i truly believe behavioral science is is both an art and a science and you have to learn about human behavior both naturally and through textbooks and i will say some of my greatest lessons of all time have been through things people I have served have told me, experiences and narratives they've shared about their life stories, about their trials and tribulations with behavior change, and the ways that, that the interventions I've developed have either supported them or not supported them. Because I've learned a lot from my failures. I've learned a lot from the designs that just went hayward, that were, that were not helpful at all. Um, and I didn't look at those as blocks in my career, I looked at them actually as some of the greatest moments when I designed something that didn't work because I learned from that. So I think that staying curious, staying humble, and experimenting with different areas of public health, of behavioral science, of uh, consumer technology, of startup life, of, you know, uh, well-established companies, having a breadth of experience can really be so critical for your development as a leader in this field i think that's a perfect answer to Stu's question if you ask me i thought you were going to finish with a, a steve jobsism <laughs> say, stay humble stay foolish but, uh, you, you i should have done that well, you should have yeah, done that, that. Should have 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 up nicely. Yeah. i mean he actually took it from the whole earth catalog just saying but um <laughs> you know it was in his it was actually in his 2005 here Stanford we go this is commencement steve address, jobs nerd moment yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, well you're around stanford you know that's, yes. that he was just down the road in palo alto <laughs> anyone who wants yeah. to know the history of steve jobs <laughs> give me a shout and even those who don't want to know about that and even those I will, I will put it on a show and I will force it 
down your throat. Yeah, <laughs> um, Casey, I think that's the perfect ending it talking is. about Steve Jobs and me. <laughs> let's me, do it. Going over, let's end on Steve Jobs. Um, yes, let's end there. So, um, Casey, thank you very much. I think I think this show will be really well received because it's, it's well rounded. Mm. It's it's great to hear your story. It's there is no standard story of anyone that comes on the no. show and I really love that about this it's, it really shows that careers take all sorts of weird and wonderful yes. um, routes they um, do so, so thank you very much for your time and I think everyone will, will really enjoy I agree thank you so show. much we'll let you go back to your day yes thank it was a much. pleasure thank you so much well that was I loved it how did you find it what it was it was really good I think for me it's one of the the most interesting things was was to see how work that's being done in US uh, really relates yeah. to a, some of the stuff that we work here on a daily basis. Um, it sounded really advanced though, actually. Is, I have to is, say, like, I, I was sort of a bit jealous of some of the stuff she was talking about. So um, I'm going to talk to her a bit more about that after. But I just, I think she's a perfect guest for this show. You know that because yeah. there, there was... Uh, everything she said was just right on the money for me and I remember yeah. seeing that post that she posted on LinkedIn a while ago probably six months ago or so and thinking that is exactly what I think about yeah. whatever and yeah. so I immediately I thought I'm going to keep an eye on this Casey Hughes and I'm going to see <laughs> if she will come on our show and I'm very um, glad she did I thought she was really good um, I think the points that she made were great I wanted to hear a little bit more about Steve Jobs um, true, true. That's not that true. she knew Steve Jobs, of no, course, but no. I wanted to hear a bit more about the Apple thing. But uh, but I, I just think, yeah, she was a great guest, and I'm sure we'll have added a lot for our illustrious listeners. Okay, Tiago, I have a question for you <laughs> that you don't know the answer. For. I, I definitely don't know do the answer. You? No, no, not at all. No. Uh, how many countries do you think we have? This show has been listened to in. Uh, so I'm going to say anything above fifty. I would be super impressed. Yeah, you actually do know the answer. Do, yeah. Don't lie to people. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's 117 countries. I actually can't believe that. We did the uh, annual general meeting notes for the BSPHN this week, and uh, I couldn't quite it believe it. 117 countries. So, uh, do you think pure luck, or, or it's it's just the quality of that we've been? I think uh, probably doing. an accident. I think someone I just think left so. it playing as I they've gone on a probably, plane probably, somewhere yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 that was impressive to me. I just have to it say, was, I'm yeah. not easily impressed by this show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, thank you again to Casey. She yes, was just a brilliant thanks. guest, absolute pro as well. Turned up, up yeah. 10 yeah, minutes early yeah. before we did. She's had her notes Impressive. ready. She's sort of very, very organised. Um, definitely get in touch with her on LinkedIn, on Twitter if you want to get hold of her. Um, she's a joy to sort of uh, have a chat with. So uh, please do get in touch. Um, right, now on to the conference. The conference. The question is, Tiago, will you be going to the conference? I don't think I'll be going to the conference. Oh. Too. <laughs> All of my team are going to the conference. All of your team's going to the conference. Yeah. I'm going to the conference. I'm going to be interviewing people at the conference. Our big goal is to make sure we... Well, A, Ash Gould, because we said that we were going yes. to have him on ages ago. That's my fault. However, our, our goal is to get Michael yes. Marmot. Sir Michael Marmot that, as well. That, that would be amazing. But we're also You're going to be on a mission. Yeah, You're for sure. Be on a mission. But we're going to do little quick cuts and make sure that we have... Um, interviews with people who are sort of you know wandering around, why are they there, all that type of stuff. So we'll share a bit of content from yeah. the conference for sure. Um... But I, uh, it's now sold out, so you can't actually go yeah. and uh, buy tickets, which was going to be my next point. You should go and buy tickets. You yeah. can't. Nope. It's so popular. It is fully sold out. But we will be giving you some content, some bonus yes. content from the, um, from the conference next month. So look forward to that. 
Right, so the next show yeah. will be the snippets and all the bonus content from the... Bonus, from content. The bonus content. Look at these exactly. two. What pros. Wow. Uh, the bonus content from the uh, BSPHN annual conference. But the the other guests that we've got lined up, um, I'm hoping it's Michael Marmot, definitely Ash Gold, but we've also got a load of people that we've got in mind and I don't know which one's going to be on next. So I'll tantalise you and leave you with that until um, we've mystery. decided that. We're adding yeah. mystery to the mix yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, a bit of intrigue. Yeah. Um, so um, it's great to uh, have a chat again with uh, Casey. Thank you for, yeah, for thank that, you. Casey. It was really good fun. And we will see you at the conference. We'll see you there. Well, you won't. <laughs> you will see them there. <laughs> I'll see them there. <laughs>